Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amber Nickel, the host of the channel, and today we are going to be talking with Yakael Weizmann about his recent publication, Unsettled Heritage, Living Next to Poland's Material Jewish Traces After the Holocaust, which came out this year on Cornell University Press. He is currently a lecturer at the Israel and Golda Koshitsky Department of Jewish History and Contemporary Jewry at Bar Ilan University in Israel. He also is uh, a well-known author who has published on topics like this extensively. Uh, Yechiel, welcome to the channel. I am really excited to discuss this text with you here today. Thank you, Amber. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very happy to be here and to discuss the book with you. You open your text with the story of your travel to a provincial Polish town in 2016. Would you mind briefly sharing this trip with listeners, using it to explain what led you to research and write Unsettled Heritage? Yes, of course. So it was um, a Sunday afternoon. Um, I was uh, visiting the town of Kolbuszowa in southern eastern Poland, uh, looking for the Jewish cemetery uh, as part of my research. And I was uh, asking around the people if they know where the Jewish cemetery is. Um, I knew that it's located somewhere in the outskirts of town, uh, in a forest, but it was hard to uh, to reach. Uh, people directed me to the general direction, but I, I was lost. Uh, so I found myself in a convenience store um, asking uh, the, the, the owner if he knows where is the Jewish cemetery. And suddenly one of the customers who was just buying a bottle of beer uh, turned around and said, uh, I know where the Jewish cemetery is. Come, I will take you. Now, this man was, um, he was obviously drunk and it seemed that he has been like this, like this for for some time, um, he wore shabby clothes, and um, but he looked very nice. So I said, "Okay, um, I will, I will go with you." Um, and so we walked for twenty minutes. Uh, it wasn't easy to understand him; he was a bit con- confused. And I have to say, it was um, very weird. Uh, uh, 
encounter walking with him to the end of town into the forest but apparently he knew exactly where to go uh, there was no signs but he knew perfectly uh, well the road and he took me directly to the entrance of the Jewish cemetery um, and he also insisted on uh, 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 going in with me so we entered the cemetery and like many Jewish cemeteries around Poland and Eastern Europe, uh, the place was covered with bushes and grass. Some of the headstones, the Matsevot, were uh, broken or bent. Uh, and he, um, my companion, was obviously very moved and he murmured in Polish all the time, Bez Shatsunku, Bez Shatsunku, meaning no respect, no respect. And he started telling me the story of the Jewish community and he knew a lot. Uh, and then he told me, um, I want to show you another thing. And he took me inside the forest to this uh, um, deserted cemetery. Then uh, I saw uh, some sort of memorial uh, built in the 50s um, for the uh, in honor of uh, several hundreds of Jews that were murdered there inside the cemetery and were buried in mass graves. Uh, and he uh, stood there and told me the entire story. And then he told me um, I was born 15 years after the massacre. Um, so this encounter was um, really uh, uh, interesting, uh, bizarre, moving, exciting. Uh, and it was part of one of many experiences that I had trying to understand this unique uh, and special uh, power and ambience of abandoned Jewish sites in the Polish provinces. Um, and, it, and these kinds of encounters led me to wonder how these sites acquired this very special and unique place in the local memory, in the local conscious, what happened to them after the war, or, or mainly uh, uh, who decided on their future, how they were perceived and interacted with during the communist years, and what were the factors that determined their status, both, both the actual status uh, and also their symbolic uh, status, and why some survived and others didn't. So these questions um, basically took me to, to a very long uh, um, journey, both intellectual, uh, emotional, and also physical. Uh, I spent a lot of time in local archives, interviewing uh, people in several towns. And the result of this research is uh, basically uh, the book. In your first chapter, you address the material traces of Jewish culture and Jewish returns in the late stages of World War II and the immediate post-war. Can you share with listeners today a little bit about what post-war Jewish life looked like in Poland? So although the war was over, Poland in the immediate uh, post-war period was still a very dangerous and unstable place, not only for the returning Jews, but, but in general. There was a general political and social chaos. Um, some sort of civil war was basically uh, uh, taking place between the supporters of the communists who were gradually uh, taking hold of the country and the nationalist circles and groups of bandits, partisans and displaced persons were moving around the countryside. 
uh, amid uh, an atmosphere of uh, material destruction, uh, shortages of housing and basic infrastructure. Uh, and Jews uh, in this um, chaotic situation were in many ways the most vulnerable uh, population. Uh, we know that according to recent research, uh, between 1,000, uh, some say even 2,000 Jews were killed and murdered after the war between 1944 to 1947. Um, for various uh, purposes, uh, many of these violent incidents were connected to questions of property when Jews were trying to reclaim back their private property and encountered uh, resistance. Um, Jews were also identified as taking the side of the new uh, communist rule, uh, reinvigorating the midst of the, of the Judeo-Communa, Judeo-Communism, so, and this identification uh, Jeopardized them, um, um, and it took uh, for uh, it took several years until the situation somehow calmed. Uh, and amid this atmosphere of instability and lack of security, uh, Jews did return to life, uh, and they could establish. Uh, um, the, some of the communal infrastructure, uh, they were able to have um, a political autonomy, a cultural and so- social um, institution were reactivating. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, we tend to forget, but until the summer of 1946, until the uh, Kielce pogrom, almost one quarter of a million Jews still lived in Poland. And uh, people still hoped and believed that there will be some sort of future to to the largest Jewish community in uh, Europe. Uh, Also in the west of Poland, in the areas that were incorporated um, uh, to Poland on the expense of Germany, uh, Jews were building new uh, settlements. um, And it seemed that in these areas, there will be, there is a real possibilities to somehow renew Jewish life. Um, These hopes in many ways um, uh, ended at the, towards the end of the 1940s, uh, with the beginning of the Stalinist rule, many Jews, thousands of Jews were emigrating out of the country. Um, but still, throughout the communist years uh, and the uh, subsequent wave of emigration, there was some uh, Jewish present presence uh, and Jewish leaders uh, were trying at least, uh, among other things, to uh, take care of their uh, material Jewish heritage. And this is also uh, a central part of um, my book. So how did the remnants of Jewish material culture, coupled with the catastrophic demographic losses due to the Holocaust, um, as well as flight in the wake of events like the Kilsey pogrom, factor into discussions about Jewishness, Jewish spaces, and Jewish property in post-war Poland? Mm -hmm. So although Jewish congregations um, still existed mainly in the larger cities, uh, most of Poland's former uh, small towns, the Stetlach, had become or or soon became completely emptied of of, uh, Jewish presence. And I think that this striking gap between a pre-war, a very rooted Jewish presence uh, 
and post-war near total Jewish absence from the communal fabric was emphasized by the persistence of what in many of these towns uh, now became the last remaining traces of Jewish life, namely abandoned cemeteries and empty synagogues. And so uh, local authorities and citizens in these towns uh, that prior to the war, many of these towns used to be uh, heavily populated with Jews. So the remaining Polish population were faced with the question, um, what to do with these thousands of empty, deserted spaces? Now, it was obvious that they will not be used for ritual purposes um, because Jewish congregation will not uh, uh, be active there. And during the rebuilding momentum after the war, this question uh, became all the more pressing. And throughout the post-war years, there was uh, a general understanding and, and also a legitimation that these sites should be uh, repurposed uh, for local needs or sometimes erased, demolished or built over. And the repeating argument among local officials who constantly uh, ask the government for approval to use, uh, to repurpose or to destroy an abandoned Jewish site was... Um, there are no more Jews here. Uh, sometimes some even mentioned that there is not even one single Jew in our town. Uh, therefore, uh, it is only legitimate that we, the town, will make use of the Jew Jewish communal uh, sites. Um, but I think that precisely this uh, striking gap between presence and absence um, seemed to have only charged these sites with multiple symbolic meanings and emotional layers as they be became now really the only reminders and remainders of the murdered Jews. So for Polish Jews, uh, those who still remained uh, in Poland, uh, trying to protect and preserve the last uh, vestiges of Jewish culture in the former shtetls became now really a sacred duty and a moral obligation, even when it was clear that uh, these sites will not be used. Um, and also for the local Polish communities and local authorities, I think that the existence of these dilapidated Jewish spaces as the only trace of Jewish presence, seem to have emphasized um, and magnified the emptiness the sites, the sites uh, radiated. Um, and in many ways, as I show in the book, Jewish cemeteries and synagogues um, were um, projected uh, with the perceptions memories and stereotypes that in the past were ascribed to the living Jews. So in a sense, um, the Jewish space replaced uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the, the Jews. They, they took their, uh, uh, the space took the place of the Jews uh, in the new post-war uh, local uh, folklore. And in a sense, um, through the post-war interaction of Poles with the material remnants of the Jews and through the discussion on the future, they were in essence, I believe, maintaining um, 
an ambivalent interaction with the Jews as figures of memory. Um, and I would say that this very unique perception, perception and status that was acquired by uh, the Jewish space made it also difficult for Polish authorities to, to discuss in a dispassionate and rational way and really complicated um, the attempts to, to settle their status. So uh, in one of the chapters, I discuss a very interesting phenomenon uh, that took place in the first post-war, post-war year when a lot of local authorities were asking for permission to use uh, Jewish sites, mainly synagogues. Uh, and although these sites were empty and there were no Jews around, still many of those local officials um, found it very hard to assimilate the notion that the Jews are no longer owners of the uh, communal property, because according to the new law, in fact, Jewish communities had no ownership right on their uh, uh, former uh, communal properties. But still, it, seem, it seems that it took uh, uh, several years for local officials to come to term with this notion. So we can see how they still contacted Jewish representative, asking them to, to sell them uh, their uh, uh, commun- commun- communal sites, although they couldn't do so the Jews, because it didn't belong to them anymore. So what I'm trying to to, to make of this phenomenon is some sort of interesting, um, I would say, inability uh, among the local level of the Polish governess to really understand that the Jewish story is over and done with. And this, I think, has to do with this very present emptiness, uh, I would say some sort of deceptive uh, emptiness that um, became the reality in many of these um, small towns. So how did political developments in Poland really start to shift some of these initial discussions and interactions? Say, for example, during the so-called Polish Thaw or even in the post-socialist period? So the um, changing political realities um, in Poland's uh, communist and post-communist years indeed shaped the interplay, I would say, between the state authorities, municipal officials, the local population, and Jewish leaders concerning uh, the Jewish issue, the treatment of the Jewish minority, and also the status and fate um, of Jewish sites. So, for example, while until the late uh, 1940s, State officials showed some level of protection to Jewish sites, and local leaders um, were still somewhat hesitant to to appropriate and use them for local purposes. Uh, already in the early fifties, and especially after the Polish thaw in nineteen fifty six, it became much more easier to use Jewish space for everyday needs, or even to destroy them altogether. Also, another uh, uh, reason was that uh, after 1956, there was a huge wave of immigration of Jews, and it also made it difficult for Jewish leaders to protect their uh, religious sites in the provinces. And also, in the increasingly uh, nationalist and anti-Semitic atmosphere in the late 50s and in the 60s, the regime was now um, more willing 
to approve local requests to clear away cemeteries and synagogues. Um, and the municipal authorities on their part uh, felt much more confident and eager to erase signs of Jewish culture from the local landscape. Um, but we can also see how the certain liberalization and pluralization of the cultural sphere in Poland after 1956 have also enabled the first opportunities for a grassroots engagement with abandoned Jewish sites, uh, initiated by local activists, local Polish activists and artists, who, in a way, um, were trying to protest against the widespread uh, profanation and vandalization of the religious spaces. Um, And these, I would say, uh, emerging sensibilities also strengthened following the aftermath of the uh, anti-Zionist campaign in 1968, which, as we know, culminated in the expulsion of thousands of uh, Jews from Poland. Uh, And coming to terms with this wave of anti-Semitism has encouraged growing circles of intellectual uh, and social activists and ordinary citizens to really rediscover the material Jewish heritage and also to fight for its survival as some sort of a counter-reaction to um, the violence. And at the same time, the regime, the Polish regime, believed that uh, facing the international criticism over what happened in 1968, supporting supporting projects of material reconstruction of well-known Jewish sites might actually ease some of the international scrutiny. Um, And also as we enter the post-socialist era, uh, with all of its complexities, complexities, um, we see how preserving Jewish cemeteries and renovating synagogues became a really substantial and overwhelming cultural phenomenon involving many uh, stakeholders and actors, both from Poland and abroad, um, who are motivated from very different um, and even conflicting uh, concerns. And and we can even see uh, today, um, in light of the recent very heated and emotional debates in Poland concerning the history and the memory of the Holocaust and Polish-Jewish relations during the the war, question of Jewish property, how, in a way, these debates are being refracted uh, in the perception and treatment of of Jewish sites. So this is a very uh, interesting development that we we can observe uh, in uh, recent years and, and even months. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I think as is already coming out in our discussion, um, it's evident that throughout your text, you underscore the tensions between the desire to remember and the desire to forget, to demolish and to preserve. How might listeners and readers make sense of this tension, if any sense can be made? Yes, um, I think this is a very interesting question, uh, which really uh, touches the crux of, of the book. I think that the interaction of the Polish society with the presence of the material Jewish leftovers evoked and continue to evoke, as we see, a very wide spectrum of attitudes, um, practices and emotions. Among them, seemingly conflicting reactions and tendencies such as uh, remembering and forgetting, and also uh, demolishing and preserving. And in many ways, they often all of these attitudes and reactions often commingle together. And I think this uh, commingling of very conflicting reaction testifies to the very ambivalent nature of uh, Jewish sites after the Holocaust. And and more broadly, uh, I would say to the ambivalent place of the Jews in the post-war Polish um, consciousness. And perhaps a way to make sense of of it is um, to understand uh, the the role of of Jewish sites in the post-Holocaust landscape as what I define in the book as uh, metonyms. Metonyms not only of the Jews, but also of their wartime fate. And, and in fact, many, uh, many Jewish cemeteries in small towns were indeed uh, uh, killing sites and places of mass burial during the Holocaust. So they really became identified with the murder of the Jews in the most concrete uh, sense. Uh, so as such, as places that were identified uh, with the Holocaust, um, these sites evoked conflicting reactions. So on the one hand, as long as they remained uh, in the heart of town or uh, repressed behind the bushes, the outskirts of town, these sites um, inevitably threatened to crack the, uh, uh, I would say, the post-war status quo, uh, which was tacitly agreed by the communist authorities and by the society. And, and according, and, and basically this status quo was founded on a collective forgetting of the Holocaust, uh, because discussing the Holocaust, discussing what happened to the Jews, uh, could raise very uncomfortable issues, such as the involvement of parts of the society in the persecution of Jews or in the taking of their property and other such uh, episodes uh, that, according to recent historical research, we know that happened. But uh, this attempt at forgetting uh, what happened to the Jews was 
an active attempt and a recurring one. And in this sense, the drive toward demolition and erasure of Jewish spaces, which was, by the way, pushed and justified mainly by, by the local authorities, was part of an obsessive attempt to clear uh, the local landscape, as I analyze it, to clear the landscape for from any mnemonic traces of uh, the, the wartime Jewish fate. And also we can see how phenomena such as littering uh, Jewish burial grounds or bringing animals to pasture in deserted cemeteries, uh, these practices were more than just simple ignorance or disdain or lack of awareness, but rather, as I call it, uh, negative memorial practices, which paradoxically show how the active act of forgetting uh, is, in a way, testifying on the really strong mnemonic presence of, uh, of the Jewish past. And um, at the same time, the identification of the Jewish sites with the fate of, of the Jews uh, was precisely uh, what, trigger, well, what triggered uh, local attempts to, to rescue these places, to, to protest the desecration and to stop the authorities from uh, repurposing them. Uh, we can read, for example, uh, I bring it in the book, uh, many letters, uh, protest letters sent by Polish citizens to the authorities or to media organs in which they tried to uh, uh, protest against what's happening uh, against the gradual destruction of Jewish uh, sites in their hometowns. And it's obvious that what motivated these individuals was uh, f- first and foremost uh, the, uh, uh, the outrage from the desecration of the memory of the Holocaust. So the identification of uh, the murder of the Jews really uh, was uh, the element that, um, uh, that made these places, I would say, um, in different ways, uh, so charged and uh, harboring very uh, different and conflicting um, emotional responses. As a whole, your book really is a case study of how societies have lived next to and continue to live next to the material traces of a troubled past and make sense of remnants of absent and exiled minorities. To what extent do the insights of your book uh, hold relevance for other post-conflict, post-genocide societies around the world? So during the walk uh, on the book, I started to realize that in many ways there are a lot of similar similar patterns, I would say almost uh, universal patterns that um, that govern the way in which deserted religious sites or abandoned property uh, are being perceived and treated uh, and interacted with um, among uh, uh, um, local communities in contested societies or post-conflict situation. Um, and both in the discursive and, and also practical level, we can see how these objects and sites uh, that often uh, 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 belong to uh, previous uh, uh, minorities uh, are continuing to evoke antagonism 
and also to encourage the desire to destroy them or to appropriate them. Um, but uh, at the same time, uh, we can see how these sites also radiate a very complex array of ambivalences um, that I could find both in the Polish-Jewish case, but in other places. So, for example, uh, I started reading about, about uh, uh, Cyprus. So, in 1974, after the Turkish invasion to the northern part of the island, there was a, a, a population exchange. So, a Capriot Turks moved uh, uh, move to the north, uh, while Greek Capriots uh, had to emigrate and leave the north of the island, uh, leaving behind uh, houses and lands and objects. And there were a very interesting um, research made in trying to understand what happened to the abandoned property and site left by the Greeks in the northern part of the island. How did the new Turkish uh, settlers uh, who entered empty houses and used property of uh, of Greeks uh, who recently fled, how they treated this property. And in many ways, we can see that for a lot of them, it wasn't easy to really appropriate and to really to to make these new acquired spaces and objects their own. There was a strong levels, level of, um, I would say, hesitance or even apprehension from really being able to use uh, Greek objects. Uh, uh, and I could, I could see it also in my case. We can see that in many towns, um, although a lot of sites were erased and other buildings were uh, erected there, uh, usually it was the case. But in a lot of places, uh, we can also detect a certain level of appreh- apprehension from uh, using an emptied Jewish space for other purposes. So even, for example, when a synagogue was demolished by a, a town, uh, in several cases, the site of the former synagogue remained empty uh, and nothing was ever built there. And while talking to people and trying to figure out why you can see in many different uh, Polish towns uh, empty Jewish spaces uh, where the cemetery once stood or where the synagogue once stood, you can mm, detect this, I would say, this certain level of uh, unease or even um, embarrassment from building over a former religious uh, site. In another example, I also um, encountered where I myself live in Israel, a place that also has its fair share of abandoned and deserted sites of of other minorities. Um, And while trying to understand what what happened, for example, to abandon Muslim cemeteries, you can also uh, detect similar patterns of behaviors and attitudes that I could see uh, in the Polish case concerning Jewish sites, also in a way um, here uh, in Israel. So it made me realize that uh, we are dealing here, of course, with a very concrete story, 
but in many ways, uh, we can learn, I think, something very interesting about how does a society live next to the material traces of, 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 I mean, of, of another society, of another minority that once um, shared the same landscape. And in what extent this experience of living next to the physical traces of others uh, is not a simple experience. And it's much more ambivalent um, and complex, I would say, than what we normally uh, think. We have taken up quite a bit of your time today. I want to wrap up our interview with my traditional question on New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Yes. Uh, so now I'm working on a new project, uh, which is a microhistorical research uh, focusing on one town uh, in Poland, uh, Olkusz. Uh, it appeared, this town, in, in the book, and I decided to zoom in uh, on this particular town and to examine the Polish-Jewish interaction and the question of the transformation of Jewish spaces. Um, but I'm stretching the time frame. So I'm looking on the period since the uh, beginning of the 20th century until today, trying to understand through the transformation of Jewish sites, objects, and spaces, uh, the uh, Polish-Jewish encounter. So I'm looking now uh, not only on the question of religious spaces, but also on the question of private property. Uh, For example, uh, what was the status of uh, private Jewish property and Jewish object, both before the war, during the Holocaust, and also after the war. Uh, and it raises, I think, very interesting uh, questions concerning inter-ethnic relations, uh, material culture. Um, and I think, um, basically, it allows me to, uh, to, to look at things from a, very, uh, from a much broader perspective, so focusing not only on the post-war period, which I did, as I did in the book, but also going back. Um, and I think that this is a very interesting experience uh, uh, to me. And it also raises uh, some questions and reflections about uh, the book, um, I have to say. Thanks for sharing that with us. I'm looking forward to reading that one. I have no doubt it's going to be just as amazing as this one. For the listeners out there, if today's discussion piqued your interest, you can pick up a copy of Yechel Weizmann's Unsettled Heritage, Living Next to Poland's Material Jewish Traces After the Holocaust, directly from Cornell University Press, or you can always order it from your local bookstore. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.